Hello and welcome back to Catching Up on Capitol Hill, a series in which we discuss the latest in tax legislation and in tax policy. I'm your host, John Gimigliano. This is likely our last episode of 2021, and honestly, it's not quite what most of us would have expected earlier in the year. The House and the Senate have concluded their formal work on the Build Back Better Act until 2022, having thrown in the towel for 2021. Now, we've always entertained the possibility that the bill could slip until next year. In fact, as recently as in our last episode. But having said that, I think most of us, the great majority of Capitol Hill and tax policy people, expected that we would have some tax legislation enacted by year end. Maybe not the full Biden tax plan, ambitious as it was, but considering the broad democratic agreement on the basics of rolling back portions of the TCJA and in raising rates, it was reasonable to assume Congress would get something through. Now, to emphasize, this is not over. And we'll pick this up again in 2022, and this may end up being just a temporary pause in the process. But this is clearly not what any of the principals, President Biden, Speaker Pelosi, Majority Leader Schumer, Chairman Neal, Chairman Wyden, wanted. So today's topic is to break down what happened and our best guess as to what's going to happen when the process begins again in January. To help me do that, we are joined by our friends Jennifer Gray and Tom Stout. Okay, so Jennifer, I'm going to ask you the first question. What is our best understanding of why the Senate could not finish its work in 2021? From what I gather, at least with regard to the reconciliation bill, I think they had a few issues. One was that Mr. Manchin, I think, was having concerns and was not comfortable with the bill and was not in a position to feel he could vote for it, or at least has not indicated to leadership he was ready to vote for it, from what we understand. Second, I think that they were having some other issues beyond Mr. Manchin with regard to negotiating some issues within their caucus. I know the state and local tax deduction certainly was one. Within the tax world, I suspect there were quite a few others with regard to spending programs and the lights that were outside the tax world. And then, you know, I think you have to remember when you're doing a reconciliation bill, it is a very complex procedural process. And Part of that process is that a number of discussions have to go on with the parliamentarian. And so I think those took quite a while. And without final language, because you don't have final agreement on the actual bill, I think that was delaying some of those conversations with the parliamentarian that needed to take place prior to voting on the bill. And let's also add, of course, that they would have had to have CBO scores to be able to do this, unlike the House, where we always said they wanted the CBO scores for political reasons. Remind me, you absolutely need the CBO scores in a budget reconciliation bill for procedural reasons in the Senate. Is that correct? Yes. Again, because reconciliation is a budget-related process, those budget numbers are very important for making sure that all the reconciliation-related requirements are being met. Well, one of the interesting things, you know, she so mentioned Manchin and that he was not really prepared to vote for this yet. He did say that he was prepared to go as high as $1.75 trillion, which was higher than what he'd been talking about most of the year, which is 1.5. So he did move somewhat, but it seems like, and maybe Tom, I'll ask you this question, his problem wasn't so much the top line getting to 1.75 trillion. His issue was how to spend within that 1.75 trillion, about how to account for these programs. Just give us a word on what really kind of the issue was that made it so hard. Well, as near as we can understand it, since it's not taking place in public, his concern is that particularly with the most expensive item in Biden's plan, the child tax credit, what the Democrats have done in the reconciliation bill is extended the credit for only a year. And one of Manchin's concerns is that there will be a lot of pressure to extend that further after the end of next year. And 
there's no pay for provided for that. So we'd be coming back to the same issue again with no agreement about revenue offsets to do it. So, you know, he's concerned that there's a long-term cost. It's a long-term program effectively that's not fully funded. The Democrats' response is, well, we'll look at it next year and we'll figure out whether we want to continue it and how we pay for it. And therein lies the discussion that's taking place, still going on between Biden and Manchin as they try to figure out if there's a way forward on this. Yeah, I think that's right. It's not that he's per se opposed to the child tax credit. It's just, I think what he's saying is if we're going to do it, we should just do it for 10 years and pay for the full 10 years worth, which if you were to do that, that would eat up almost all of the $1.75 trillion that he's offered, which would leave many of other Democratic priorities out of the bill. I think that's kind of the challenge that they've got to try and work through in the coming weeks and potentially months. So let's talk about 2022. What's the timeline look like? So they come back, I think January 3rd, the Senate. So just give us an idea. How do you think it goes when they return? Are there hard deadlines they must meet? Or you know, what's going to force action on this thing when we get to 2022? Well, unlike things like debt ceiling and budget, there is no deadline. There's no real deadline. So the artificial ones are being created. The one we're just passing now was the end of the year adjournment. The next deadlines coming up are potentially the State of the Union address, which is, I think, in the second week of February. And February 18th, which is when a continuing resolution that's got the government running now will expire and they'll have to come back to that again. So they'll play up against those deadlines. But in truth, neither one of them is a hard deadline. The political deadline in this or potential political deadline in this is that now that they haven't passed the bill and won't pass the bill if they pass it at all until early next year, is that the child tax credit refund deposits that should have been going out to arrive on January 15th probably will not take place. So there's some political pressure on that end to do something more quickly than waiting until February 18th. And clearly, I think the Democrats will play that up as a reason for urgency. And indeed, I think today, Jen Psaki said that Biden wants the action on the bill as, as soon as they come back in January. Yeah, and that was posited as one of the reasons we must do it this year. So you're right. I guess it becomes that much more acute and pressing when they go to January. You know, I think we've said on this podcast a couple times that at the beginning of the year, you can look at the calendar and start circling dates when you think things could happen. As you said, one is the continuing resolution is a date that something will have to happen. Other two dates that are obvious are always the last day that they're in session before the August recess and the last day they're in session before the end of the Congress back in December. So I guess we could circle those two dates, but one of them is far off in the future. And the other one is after a midterm election and a lame duck session. So that's pretty far away. It may be too far away for this conversation. All right, Jennifer, let's just say we're now negotiating this in 2022 and your legislative staff writing this bill. Do you think they're thinking about changing effective dates now because we've slipped from 2021 to 2022? Is that something that we think is reasonable that they would be thinking about? Or do you think they'll just stick with the dates as they currently have them in the legislation we've already seen? Well, I think it's going to be a mix. I suspect that some items that were scheduled to be effective on a particular date, say January 1, 2022, I suspect that at least that they're able to move this bill relatively quickly, those dates might stick. I know there were a number of dates that did not come into play until in the future, particularly in the international world. I suspect uh, there would not be pressure to change those. However, I mean, certainly there are absolutely dates that there will be pressure to change. You know, those that use date of enactment as a kickoff point, for instance, effective for calendar years beginning after date of enactment, those sort of things, they're absolutely going to have to take a look at those and trying to figure out what the proper way to adjust those might be. 
Yeah, I think the two problematic ones in particular, maybe they aren't, but just to think about is we've actually got two that are effective in 2021, one of which is the state and local relief that the House has put in place, and maybe they're perfectly fine maintaining that for 2021, even though it would be enacted in 2022. And the other one is the 461L provision that limits the ability to utilize certain losses really applied in 2021. Those are interesting to see if they'll defer those to 2022. And as you said, Jennifer, we already had some stuff that was January 1, 2023, the international provisions. Interesting to see if those get pushed out to 2024. I don't know, Tom, do you have a point of view on effective dates? I would agree with all of that. Uh, I would say, too, on the international, that's something that could happen in the future. But there's a lot of resistance from Treasury to push those days out immediately beyond 2023, because this is sort of a chicken and egg problem with the rest of the world, where everybody's trying to get on board with Pillar 2 and the OECD plan. And if we push out, everyone else will push out, too. And then there's a greater danger that ends up at the end of the day. Nothing happens and the OECD agreement falls apart. Totally agree. So one of the really interesting storylines to watch next year is what happens to effective dates. Even if they keep all the provisions that they currently are, we doubt that's going to be true, that there are going to be negotiations about what's in that bill. But even with the stuff that stays in, we'll be looking at effective dates. And don't forget, the ones that have those outside effective dates, even if they keep the closer and effective date in the legislation, if it were to pass, that doesn't mean there won't be pressure after that fact to potentially delay those further before they come into effect. Correct. Right. It's, it's going to be an interesting thing. And I think something that I'm sure taxpayers are going to be lobbying about is the deeper this slips into 2022, they may convince themselves if they enact this thing in the first week of January, fine. Sticking with January 1 is fine. But if this slips into late January, into February, at some point, they're going to be concerned about enacting retroactive tax increases. Right. So this is kind of a moving target, I think, potentially. Tom, 2022, look, you know, we brought this up, I think, on our last episode where we talked about, you know, conventional wisdom is that uh, Congress doesn't do big, bold legislation in midterm election years. And then I think we went on to say, but yeah, this is not a conventional year or a conventional piece of legislation. So because we now are going into 2022, that midterm election year, let me ask you, you give us the case for why we should still be optimistic that the Build Back Better Act is going to pass next year. What's the rationale for why optimism is a reasonable place to be? Well, yeah, I think it starts with the bills. The bill was put on the floor in the House and Senate. The vote is going to be 270 to 1 for the <laughs> among the Democrats, or maybe 269 to 2. The problem being 50-50 divide in the Senate means every one of those is necessary, and they still haven't landed Joe Manchin. But, you know, has overwhelming Democratic support, virtually unanimous Democratic support at the level where they are now. And Manchin's history is that at the end of the day, if he's the critical vote, he is there because he is still a Democrat, a lifelong Democrat in state office and federal office, and will not bring down the entire Democratic agenda and vote no at the end of the day. But one of the most popular parlor games in Washington is guessing how Manchin would vote if he was actually forced to vote on the bill, something he's trying to avoid, I think. One of the questions is, you know, people say, well, will they really pass this bill in an election year? I mean, the flip side of it is they may think that they don't want to run in November without having passed the bill, right? That it's actually going to be a positive. And so they can't go into November without having success on this. So that will be a motivator to do it. And they may need some positives if the pandemic continues the way it's going. We still have some degree of inflation in the economy, even if it's looking better than it's looking now, it's probably not going to look as good as it looked before the pandemic started. So a lot of negatives that they're going to want to have something to talk about elsewhere. Let's flip the question around then for you, Jennifer. Then, So Tom, give us the case for optimism 
What's the case for pessimism? Why should we be pessimistic that they're going to be able to pull this off in 2022? I think to begin with, there's what changes after a month or so are the same problems that are holding the bill up now going to continue to hold the bill up. Concerns of Senator Manchin and perhaps some other moderates, as well as you know, really working out the details on some of these policy items. Are they going to be able to solve those problems just with the passage of time? Something is going to have to change in order to be able to deal with the issues they have not been able to deal with as well. Tom mentioned that things could change, and I think that could go either way. For instance, if Omicron becomes more of an issue, or if there's some other economic shock, or even if there's completely unrelated issues, some international situation as well. I mean, there may just be other issues that take precedent and cause people to think that maybe they should be spending their time on other things. Even if they decide they need to look at economic stimulus, perhaps the decision is made that that needs to look different than what is in the reconciliation bills currently. One of the problems that is really challenging and has been challenging for Democrats is they're between a rock and a hard place here because normally the way we've seen this happen over decades is when you have trouble getting consensus, you just need to make the bill a little bit bigger and give people a little bit more. So Joe Manchin, what do you really need? And normally that would be the way it would go. The problem here is that the rock that they're up against is inflation. And his concern is, no, I don't want the bill bigger. Right? Because in his mind, we can debate whether or not this is true, but in his mind, it makes the inflationary effects worse. And so the way that this is normally resolved in making this bill bigger is does, it can't really fall back on that this year. And in fact, there's pressure to make it smaller. And in early January, we're going to get another inflation report. And how that goes, I think, could be important, as you suggested, Tom. If we got a good outcome, that could make people feel like, hey, you know, inflation's over, we're good. And on the other hand, if it's another bad one, that could really put more pressure on making the bill even smaller and making it even harder to pass. So Look, I go both ways on this. There are reasons to be optimistic. It absolutely could pass, but I come back to the point that you made, Jennifer, is where I am. If they couldn't get it done this year, why do we think it's gonna be easier next year? Now, clearly it could happen, but to me, that's the overall calculus that it can only be harder next year, but who knows? You know, These things are interesting and we're just gonna to have to see how this plays itself out. And you know, one thing I keep coming back to on, on that issue in particular, what makes some of these hard issues sort of breaks the logjam. One option I keep thinking about is you know, perhaps they pass a bill that is called the Build Back Better Act, but that looks nothing like what we see now. Perhaps it's significantly smaller. Perhaps it deals with significantly different issues. So my best guess is perhaps they have a bill that's called the Build Back Better Act passed and signed by the end of next year, but I wonder what it actually looks like and how much it may or may not resemble what the last draft of that bill that we've seen. Interesting theory. Tom, do you think if they pass, let's just say a trillion dollar bill, right? Forget two trillion, forget 1.7, whatever. Let's just say it was a trillion dollar bill called the Build Back Better Act, and it had in it maybe some pandemic relief, other pieces that we've seen in a smaller version, do you think that could pass? And do you think that could be enough to declare victory and move on? Well, I think the plan B is if this doesn't go, I think they'll probably force a vote at some point. If it doesn't get 50 votes in the Senate, then what they'll probably do is break it up into pieces and bring the pieces up with or without pay fors And you know, I'm not sure how they pay for them. But I think plan B is to bring this back up in pieces. So we might see the child credit coming up for a year maybe with pay-fors, maybe without. Those are the kinds of things that they'll probably try to do if they can't get it through the way it is. Oh, great. So you're telling me, Tom, that not only do we have to watch for one bill next year, we may have to watch for a whole series of bills in 2022. That's not exactly the high note that I wanted to go out on the year on, but anyway, but it's well, a fair point. Yeah. That probably happens anyway, because as it stands now, the child tax credit's only extended for a year. Okay. So we are going to come back to that issue at the end of next year, the issue of how to pay for it if we're going to extend it beyond 2022. 
Oh, there's always another tax bill just on the horizon. Well, thanks for that. And thank you both. Uh, that's all we have time for today. In closing, maybe just one last observation for 2021. And what a crazy year it was. Now, you might say 2017 was like this, too, but really it wasn't. Remember, back in 2017, the GOP was focused on repealing and replacing the Affordable Care Act for most of the year. They didn't really turn to tax reform until that process had clearly failed. If you recall, the first meaningful information we got in 2017 on taxes was the framework on tax reform, which was just a few pages long and was released at the very end of September. And then, of course, it was a full sprint until we got enactment in December of 2017. But this year has been a long, tough slog. We've been talking about and debating the Biden tax plan every step of the way. Let me just remind you, in case you've forgotten, all those steps. Of course, we started the year with the Biden campaign plan, which is a pretty good indicator of how things were, were going to shape up over the course of the year. At the end of March, we got our first look at the Made in America tax plan, which was the corporate plan. By the end of April, we had the American family plan, which was the individual plan. And the combination of these two things gave us a good outline of the fullness of the Biden tax plan that we would talk about all year. Then the Friday before Memorial Day weekend, we received the Green Book, the administration's formal budget proposals on reforming the tax system, which was mostly a fully formed tax plan. You may recall Speaker Pelosi then announced that Congress would complete its work on this legislation and send it to the president for signature by July 4th. No, of course, that didn't happen. But we then spent the whole summer engaged in debates about capital gains rates and capital gains effective dates and step up in basis and so on. Then in early September, the Ways and Means Committee began its formal markup of the tax proposals in the Build Back Better Act, with most of the tax title coming to us on September 13th. We now had full legislative text to pour over. But then we spent weeks or months, really, trying to understand how the Ways and Means Bill was going to change so that it could pass the House in conjunction with the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill, which you recall was being negotiated in parallel. Well, the Build Back Better Act finally was approved by the House in mid-November. And then we spent our Thanksgiving talking about how or when the Senate would act on the House bill. And now we've debated these Senate changes all the way up until yesterday. So yes, it's been a year. And if you're a little tired of this discussion, I get it. You know, Congress was pretty widely criticized for moving the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act so quickly back in 2017. And I, I absolutely understand why. But watching the Build Back Better Act process this year, it makes you wonder if really that's the only way the TCJA could have been done with that speed. That time and transparency are not really the friend of bold legislation. In any event, we've all earned the right to unplug, to stop thinking about the Build Back Better Act for a while, and to enjoy the holiday. I plan to, and I look forward to resuming our long-running dialogue on the Biden plan when the calendar flips to 2022. With that, thanks again for tuning in to Catching Up on Capitol Hill. Please don't forget to submit your questions, comments, and your suggestions to our inbox. Take care, and I hope to see you soon.